I ask you to go to Mark chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in front of you. Hopefully you're sitting, there's one in front of you. We're in part three of a series where we're looking at the cross of Jesus. We're looking at the cross of Jesus as we approach Easter. And today we're going to talk about a rather heavy subject, and that is death. We're going to talk about death today. It's not always a pleasant thing, and we don't necessarily always want to think about this. But it's a very important subject because it's a very hard and very difficult reality. So we're going to talk about the subject of death today as we look at Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 39. This is the Word of God. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemme sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Let me pray for the message and we'll get into this. Lord, we ask that you would have your grace upon us. We talk about this difficult subject matter. And I know this may be particularly hard for some people who hear this. Maybe they have lost a loved one recently. We ask that you would especially comfort them. You would make us all sober, Lord, and see life in this fallen world the way your scriptures present it. But not with pessimism or darkness, but with the hope that we have through Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray. You know, it's not um, often that you hear someone talk about death. It's a hard subject. It's a hard thing to deal with. Um, but especially as we go to the cross, I felt that it was, it was appropriate. And we're looking at this passage, we're looking at the death of Jesus. But the death of Jesus, I think, opens up the meaning, the question, not just of his death, but of death itself. And in this, and today I'd like to talk about you know, that life, that when someone dies, when someone dies, it isn't just a question that someone that you knew, they were talking, they were laughing with you, they were hanging out with you, they were sharing life with you that is no longer with you, but there's also the question of meaning. Their life, was it, did it have meaning? All that they did and accomplished or didn't accomplish they loved certain people, maybe they hated certain people, all the work that they put in, the money that they made, the things that they built, 
All the, all the time and energy that they invested into various people and pursuits, now they are gone. Right? And all, all that, does all that matter anymore? Does it still matter? And the question, another question I'd like to raise with you today is, you know, we live in a society. It isn't just you and me and as, as individuals, we are pursuing life and the meaning. We're trying to shape meaning in life. But we as a whole society, as a people, as a culture, you know what cultures are? It is the production of meaning in groups, <laughs> corporately, collectively, a whole set of people. This is, we gather together and this is our meaning. And we have all these practices and customs and expectations about how we shape our relationships and all the days that we spend together. And this culture is the production of meaning as a people. But you know what? As people die, does all that have meaning as well too? And so as we look at this passage that what the scripture is uh, uh, dealing with is what another portion of the scripture they call the sting of death. The sting of death itself, and the sting is very deep and powerful and painful. Right? It isn't just that we lose and we grieve, but there's this deeper question even does life itself, does it have meaning? Does our individual lives have meaning? Does our corporate life together as cultures have meaning? And to this, I'd like to just share with you a couple things. This first, a couple weeks ago, to talk about, you know, life in its individual sense. And you, I've, uh, I'd like to share with you a little bit about some things I experienced recently. About a couple weeks ago, we had a funeral here at this church. And many of you here in this room are, are fairly young and are, are very healthy, and especially if you're friends and if you're family members and if you're, you're the closest people with you, you know, if, if you haven't really felt quite yet the sting of losing a loved one, you may not have had much opportunity to think about death and its meaning and what does it mean about the meaning, say about the meaning of life. But, you know, as a pastor and especially, you know, thankfully not too many people in this congregation have passed away or have suffered loss, but you know, we're connected to this larger church and there are many people who are older in the Korean-speaking congregation. We do regularly from time to time have, have funerals here in this, in this church. And as a pastor, I, I go to some of these um, services and funerals, even if I'm not necessarily officiating over them. And there was one a couple weeks ago and the, and we, and this, and the service was over a, a person who was actually not been a member of our church very long. His name was Dr. Ahn. Now, Dr. Ahn was apparently a fairly successful orthodontist and apparently is relatively well-known here in, in this Santa Clara County area. And um, I'm not sure if you know this. He's very, he was actually very successful. I had occasion to have, I and some of the other pastors had occasion to have um, dinner with Dr. Ahn, his family, and a few other of the families uh, a few weeks Go So I only had known him a very brief amount of time, but I did get to meet him. Dr. Ong was quite successful. Um, have any of you ever had orthodontic work? And, you, you know, you have the metal braces. Maybe you have that, and that probably wasn't too pleasant. But do you know that the technology has advanced now? And part of the reason that the technology has advanced was due to Dr. Ong. Dr. Ong was with some of his partners, started a company called Invisalign. Have you guys ever heard of Invisalign? 
This is how they do it now. They don't put these little metal braces. I mean, I think if you have a very severe crooked teeth, you that's how they do it. But today now, they have, it's more clear, and they, you know, they, they have these inserts, and it's called Invisalign, and Dr. On, I guess, helped invent this product and start this company. He was, the man was, had, he had tasted success and accomplishment in his life. Uh, I think he, he, he had a winery <laughs> up in, in uh, Sonoma County. He, was, uh, he knew a lot about wines, the man uh, was well accomplished, and um, he was apparently well respected. And a lot of people came to that memorial service that day. And a number of people who are not Christian, they don't go to our church. And a number of them, you know, this is a predominantly Korean American church, and although our service is not only for Koreans, um, but a lot of people who are not Korean came to that service. And when you go to a funeral or to a memorial service, it is a good time to be reminded to reflect and think about life itself. It's very sobering. And there's two things that particularly stood out to me on that day. So even though doc, I was not personally close to Dr. An, I am actually still very much edified and um, moved by the Lord on those days. And two things particularly stood out for me. One was, what do people talk about at memorial services and funerals? What do they say? It's interesting, when they remember this person that has passed on, what do they say and remember about this person? Do they tell you how how successful he was, or how famous he was, or how much money he made? Dr. Ahn had actually had success, and and he was very accomplished, and he was really, I could tell just by talking to him, he was very smart. I was just talking to the man, and one day I was like, this guy is, I mean, he's got some serious horsepower up there in his brain, right? And, but nobody said any of that stuff, right? There were two eulogies given that day, one by his daughter and one by a good friend of his who is a member of our church. And neither of them said anything about his, his wealth or success or his accomplishments or achievements. Instead, they talked about how he loved people, about his humility, and how he took care of those around him. At that, at the dinner that where I sat across from him, I asked him because after he mentioned that he he had, he had was one of the people that started Invisalign, I realized, wow, this guy is really successful. But he was still an orthodontist, and I asked him, why do you still do that? Because I'm sure he was probably rich enough that he didn't have to do that kind of work anymore. And I asked him. Why do you still do the orthodontic work? And it was an interesting answer. He said, because I like the kids. And I like serving the kids. Right? And, um, and that's why I like to do it. And some of the people who came to the service that day, I think, were people whose families you know, he served. And they came to remember him and honor him that day. And that statement that he made was in my mind as his daughter talked about all the different people that he, whom he loved, of course, his own family. Um, that's, that was on my mind, and that's what people remember. Right? I'll tell you the second thing that struck me about that day. At the service, it was an open casket ceremony. So his, his, uh, his body was there and in, in, a, in, in a coffin, and it was an open casket so people can get to see them. And at, toward the end of the service, you are invited to come and you know lay a flower on Dr. An and pay final respects to him. 
and then his family stands. So that, you know, if this was the front of the service, you know, his the open casket may be here, and then his family kind of stands in a row here, and people would come along, pay last respects to Dr. On, and then they would, you know, the various people in the family and loved ones would stand there, and some would would hug his wife, his widow, and they would grieve and they would weep together. Some would hug his children. Some would shake hands and they would walk and then as, as they would um, step out of the service. Um, and uh, there was one particular family that stood out for me. The family was Indian. They were Korean. And I don't know if they believe in the Lord. Most Indians who live in Santa Clara County I don't think are Christians. Okay? So in all probability... I don't think that family was Christian. And so this family came along. They were Indian. They must know Dr. An in some capacity. And the the father, the husband of the family, he was an older gentleman. I think I'm I'm guessing he was in his like maybe mid to late 50s. He he hugged his wife, right? And you could tell he had been he had been mourning. And um, and at the end of the row of the family was Dr. uh, was was Pastor Yoon. You know, the pastor on our Korean-speaking site, he stood at the end of the line. And uh, I thought it was remarkable, the, the father of this family, you know, he greeted the family. And then when he got to the end of the line and got to Pastor Yoon, you know what he did? He hugged Pastor Yoon, right? And I thought, I thought wow. I mean, he's probably not a Christian, right? And yet, he had, he, he, I, could, I sat on that side of the room, and I got to see almost the whole train of people because I was one of the last people to, to go through that line. And he hugged Pastor Yoon and I thought that was so remarkable because even if you don't believe in the God of the Bible, even if you don't, um, if you're not sure, people know it is a universal need that we need answers. We need comfort. We need a powerful word in the face of death. And this gentleman was grateful to a pastor. That's not his pastor, and he probably doesn't even necessarily believe the same things. And yet on that day, he was grateful. Right? I'll, uh, one other person that, that stood out for me in that, in that uh, line was uh, my own dentist. <laughs> I... I, I, I um, and my own dentist, he, he's an oral surgeon, so recently I had some work done, and you, know, you, you hope you never have to go to this guy because that means your teeth have serious problems, okay? But he's an oral surgeon. He's not your normal, the typical dentist. And I was like, hey, that, that guy's my dentist, right? And, and, um, and I, know, I know that that guy is an atheist. I've, I've had conversations with him, and I know he's an atheist. And yet on that day, he came. He came to pay respects, and he too mourned. And uh, it was important that day and that's what it's like and I don't know what some of you if some of you are have friends and loved ones who are facing this but you know when you look at a passage like Mark chapter 15 do you see this as how relevant it is how incredibly profoundly relevant it is that this passage is saying he who is God almighty has tasted this death right he has gone experienced this fullness of this bitter and terrible thing that we have, that we all have to face. Now let me talk about the second thing, the second point. That's about facing death as individuals. Let me talk about what does it mean 
Something, an issue, a larger issue about facing death as a people in a corporate, the death of a culture. And to get at the subject, let me share with you a little bit about something that I, I, I read from this book. This book is How Civilizations Die. And then he has in parentheses, and why Islam is dying too. It's a very relevant book for the issues of the world at this time. And I don't know if this is your, your cup of tea. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a nerd. And I like books like this. I, I, I read this book, and the first chapter was so intriguing. I just, I mean, I just like devoured this book in a couple of days. I went sh- shot right through it. Um, the author is a guy named David P. Goldman. And Goldman, according to this black back flap, he is a, he headed the global bond research for Bank of America as well as other Wall Street research groups. So you know what this guy say, what he does? A, a guy who handles bonds has to understand, I mean, very complex realities. And if he did this for Bank of America, that means he is really smart. And he is at the top of financial food chain. And he lives in New York City, of course, because people who do this kind of work, they all live in New York, right? Um, but that means he's brilliant, and he's probably very wealthy and successful. But um, I think the work on this book came out of a column. He, for now, he also writes a column. He doesn't write for the New York Times or, or for the Washington Post. He writes for an online paper called the Asia Times Online. And the column that he writes is called the Spengler Column, and he wrote the, and it's named after a historian. So there's a famous historian of the 20th century. His name is, I don't know if you know, if you've ever heard of him, but his name is Oswald Spengler. And Spengler was a pessimist. And Spengler talked about how people, their demographics, and about whether, when cultures die out, how it affects history. And one of this guy Goldman's great insights, he's learned from Spengler, and he writes about, you know, he, he writes about some of the global things that's going on in the world, and he talks about specifically about demographics and how this has great impact on economics and world power and population. And just, get, just to give you a quick little bit about this without getting too into it, I don't know if you guys know this, but when a society, how many babies a society produces is a huge factor in how rich that society will be, how powerful that society will be, and, and, and will affect global power and politics around the whole world. That's a huge issue. And, you know, people have actually, the, those demo, uh, the pe- demographers, those are the people who study populations, they say that in a, in a nation, if the birth rate isn't at least 2.1 children per woman, that that society will literally start to shrink. You know, you need to have a 2.1 babies for it. And that's just to keep... The, the population stable to just to replace yourselves, so to speak, right? And if you want to grow and, and, and become a more powerful society, you know, except for immigration, the only other way is, you know, we need to have more babies. But when that number starts to get low, literally your society will shrink. And when your society shrinks, there's a lot less people that work. There are a lot less people that make money and invent products and, and, and create wealth and prosperity and economic power. And then, of course, your whole society as a nation will start to get weaker and will start to be less on on the world stage. Now, at a certain point, now, 
I mean, let's just use, I'll just use Korea as an example, just because so many of the people who go to this church are Korean Americans. But Korea is, I don't know, something roughly like 50 million people. Their birth rate is something like 1.2 babies per woman. I don't know if you know that. And so sometime in the next 20 some odd years, do you realize that there will be a lot less Koreans in the world and Korea will literally shrink as a nation and even though right now Korea is entering the first world, becoming one of the global players in the world, in 20 years, they'll be in serious trouble. That is a major, major issue. And this guy, and not a lot of people talk about this, but Goldman, and as he examines bonds, is like, all right, we're going to loan this country millions and millions of dollars. Is it worth it? He actually examines these issues, and he writes about it. And he makes an argument in this book which I'm hoping that a lot of the smart people and the world leaders actually pay attention to this argument. He makes a very powerful argument in this book that human beings must deal with mortality. And he says, not just individuals, but whole nations have to think seriously about what does it mean that as a nation, you could possibly die out. Now, have you ever thought about this? That your life is not just meaningful because you live and you have certain individual loved ones, but your life has meaning within a whole fabric of meaning within your culture. Because culture is a corporate, it's a group form of meaning making. And your life won't really have meaning unless you have all these other people around here offering you means of like having meaningfulness in all the different interactions. So just think about it. Just use, use holidays as an example. What would you do in December if there was no Christmas? What would you do in July if there was no 4th of July? Hmm? I mean, think about the whole course of the year. There's many holidays that we celebrate because our culture says these are important events. These are heroes. This is what makes up the fabric of who we are as a people together. But if you realize that throughout history that there have been so many holidays and so many celebrations and so many meals and songs and movies and heroes that have been celebrated. But you know what? They are gone now. When was the last time you heard anybody say, oh, let's celebrate the Sumerian Harvest Festival holiday? <laughs> Nobody does that. What songs and heroes did the Babylonians celebrate? Huh? The ancient Greek holidays, you know, all the, the, the music and the stories that said the great hero of Hercules. You know, we have a holiday that's dedicated to him. Nobody has those holidays anymore. That culture is dead and it's gone. Isn't that incredible? In that way, whole nations, when that, when that possibility comes that the nation itself can die, do you realize what it offers you? That life, the very meaning of life, is in jeopardy. Right? Now, let me read you a quote from this book. Well, actually, before I get to that, let me, let me give... The argument that he makes is twofold right now. Nations are actually in danger of dying out. And there's a certain tipping point. If you go, like, two, three generations, you will shrink from, like, 50 to 40. I mean, you just start shrinking and shrinking. And there's a tipping point when the nation can't come back and become strong again. This is not just, Korea has this problem, Japan has this problem. Many of the, of the so-called more advanced nations of the world, they're all facing demographic decline. In Europe, this is a very serious issue. And what he says in this book is, how do the Europeans deal with the fact that they are shrinking and their nations are actually in threat of possibly dying out, the Germans or the French, how do they deal with it? 
He says the way they deal with it is apathy. They really are just kind of apathetic about the future. And so then with this, let's just all stay rich and comfortable and live today. But the future, you know, they just kind of hunker down and not think about it. That's how he describes the European response to the fact their culture could die. But there's another response. He says, there's a different type of response in a different portion of the world. And that's why he says, why Islam is dying too. And here he's talking about the more Islamic countries, and in particular he talks about Iran. Many people think all the Arab and predominantly Muslim countries, they have tons and tons of babies, right? How can this possibly be their worry? According to him, that's not true. In previous generations, a woman who was growing up in, in Islam may have had six, seven, or eight children, but apparently now, in this, in this recent generation, that's all changed. Their, their birth rate has dropped below two, just like the European countries. And so they're in serious trouble too. In fact, he actually argues they're in more trouble than the Europeans. So their culture is in threat to die out. Actually, their religion is even in threat to die out. That's kind of hard to imagine since there are so many people who are Muslims today, right? But you know what he says? How do the Islamic people deal with, not all of them, but some of them, how do they deal with this threat? Some people will say, we won't think about the future and let's just live comfortably now. He says, but that's not how some of the people in the Islamic world, their view is, if we can't beat the West and we hate their way of living, if we can't win in a war against them, it's better for us to all go out, die in a blaze of glory. That's what he says. That's his explanation for why there are certain sets of people why they will not play ball and join the world global economy and then have peace in the world. They would rather go out and die. You hear what he's saying? It's an incredible thing. That when we face mortality, how we deal with it, that's a huge question. Some people say, well, just hunker down and just, just be comfortable and rich. And other people will say, we'd rather die. Do you know how tremendously relevant that is on our global picture today? We have our leaders in Washington, D.C. They start wars. They have all these policies because we're trying to achieve a certain form of peace. But can you imagine if there's a set of people that say, we will take no peace whatsoever. You can't bribe them. You can't give them goods. You can't say, hey, join our economics Join, you know, we're going to send our diplomats to you and we can have peace and we can be friends and you can have democracy and you can develop and you can live comfortably like us. That carrot won't work for such a people. That's what Goldman is saying. It's incredible what he's saying. And it's a terrible thing to face. Let me read you a couple quotes from what he says. The weakest link in the secular account of human nature, and that's our society's account, we have a very secular wisdom in our society, not a biblical or a theological wisdom, but a secular. The weakest link in the secular account of human nature is that it fails to account for people's powerful desire to seek immortality for themselves and their loved ones. Traditional society had to confront infant mortality, as well as death by hunger, disease, and war. You know what he's saying here? Traditional society, that's pre-modern societies. They who don't have the science and the technology and the medicine and so forth, 
they would have babies born and then they would die. You know, many of you guys know in Asian culture, but in Korean culture, there's a, a, a special celebration for the first birthday. They actually have a special celebration for the 100 day and then they have a special celebration for the first birthday. Why? Because before Korea became modern, a lot of kids didn't make it. So they would have infant mortality, but then they also had war, hunger, famine, disease. So that it was normal and regular in pre-modern societies for there to be death around you. Babies would die. People would not make it past 20 or 25 if they got sick. And then if there'd be a war, and then if there's famine, it's not like you can, everybody can expect to live to a ripe old age. It was common that people did not. And so he says it's just normal in society that there'd be a powerful desire that there'd be an answer for death. But then he says, well, but for us, that shouldn't be too troubling, however, because we may not be able to duck death completely. And this is, he thinks, the attitude of those of us who live in modern and prosperous societies. We may not be able to duck death completely, but it becomes so infrequent that we can easily forget about it. And then he gets a little sarcastic. He says, has death really become infrequent? Let me offer you Spengler's Universal Law, and he calls it Spengler's Universal Law number three. Contrary to what you may have heard from the sociologists, the human mortality rate is still 100%. That's what he says to you. We can refuse for only so long to face the fact that we will die. And he's not just talking about us as individuals, but that whole nations. And then he goes on, and I want to quote from you a book. He reads from a book. He takes a very powerful quote. Now, Goldman is not a Christian. Goldman is Jewish. And there are many secular Jews today. You know, they're Jewish by ethnicity, but they don't necessarily believe in God. Goldman does believe in God. He is religiously observant. He probably goes to synagogue. He, is, he, he's, uh, he does believe in God. And he offers you this question from a different Jewish theologian that he read, a guy named Franz Rosenzweig. And Rosenzweig lived in the early 20th, cent- uh, 20th century, and Rosenzweig is a survivor of, the, of World War I. Now, if any of you guys don't know, World War I was a horrific, horrific war. What they would, what you do is you have like the French, and they would line up in a trench, and then the Germans would be in a trench over here, and then what they would say is, all our soldiers have to run out of this trench and then go take these guys down, and so then we would take this piece of land. And you know what happened? The French would run out, and the Germans would machine gun them down. And then they would amass enough guys over there. The Germans would run out, and then the French would machine gun them down. And then they would take this place back, and then the next trench they would take back. It it was crazy war. They would take a trench, and then they would take a trench, and neither could win. And it wasn't like modern warfare where, like, you you know, a missile would blow up, and then, you know, you can't even find the body because everything would just blow up. You know, people were just blown to bits and smithereens. That's not the way it was in World War I. If you were in that trench and you came out, like the bullets would fly and you would, and then you would, like after it's over, maybe you survived, but all your buddies and all your fellow soldiers, you would just see them just packed up. It was completely, it just destroyed the psyche of Europe. And Rosenzweig went through this and he survived it. And he wrote some things in a journal, which, uh, which come down in, in some of his books now. And Goldman quotes it. Here's what he says. 
Just as every individual must reckon with his eventual death, the peoples of the world foresee their eventual extinction. He watched nations, like watched generations of young men get machine gunned down. Be it however distant in time. Indeed, the love of the peoples for their own nationhood is sweet and pregnant with the presentiment of death. Let me read that again. The love of peoples for their own nationhood is sweet and pregnant with the presentiment of death. I didn't know what that meant, so I had to look it up. <laughs> okay? You know what he's saying? Presentiment. I don't know what that word means. So here's what the word presentiment means. That we love people, we love our culture, we love those around us, but in this there's a sweetness, but that sweetness has something else, the presentiment of death. And presentiment means this, the feeling that there, in the future there's some evil that's going to come to us. The feeling that the, the evil of death is going to come to us. So we may love our cultures and we may love one another, but in this sweetness there's still this presentiment of death. Love is only surpassing sweet when it is directed toward a mortal object. But the secret of this ultimate sweetness only is defined by the bitterness of death. You get it? There's a sweetness, but there's a death, and there's a bitterness in it. Thus the people of the world foresee a time when their land with its rivers and mountains still lies under heaven as it does today, but other people will dwell there. When their language is entombed in books and their laws and their customs have lost their power. And Goldman does this. Goldman concludes this way. Awareness of death defines the human condition so that human beings cannot bear their own mortality without the hope of immortality, without the hope of eternal life. And our sense of immortality is social. The culture of a community is what unites the dead with those yet to be born. You know, many people think that, oh, Christians, you know, they go into the church and they talk about all these things. You ever think that a passage such as this, it's only seven verses. It's only seven verses. It's saying that He who is God Almighty, in Him is eternal life itself. It's not like He gives eternal It is. He is life. That He came into this world. He took on human flesh so that He could taste the deepest sting of death. Not just the physical death, but He would endure all its fears and all its bitterness within us. The Bible teaches us we, in all our deepest need, in all our brokenness, in all our bitterness, God, He isn't just outside of the system and saying, oh, you know, you just have to deal with it. He will come in and bear it with us together. For He says there on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can imagine that? This is the Son of God. He is divine. Is God saying to God, as a human being, He is crying the cry of the deepest pain that the human being could feel. The loss, death producing the loss of meaning. He cries out to God. And He did this so that He could conquer it for us and offer us this profound immortality that we desperately need. That's what the Gospel offers us. I'd like to close this um, 
message with a personal note. Um, Last night, uh, my family, we we had a family dinner together. And I'm talking like an extended family. So um, my brother and his wife and children and my parents, they all live in this greater San Jose area. And we don't get together as often as we'd like, but we, we try to get together. And yesterday was a birthday dinner. And so in our family, uh, we, we, we can't hit everybody's birthday, so we kind of lump them together into one. And so we had all, we hit all the Mount March birthdays uh, yesterday in, in a family dinner at my brother's house. And it was great. It was, it was, I mean, you know, there has been some conflict in my, in my family in recent years. And only in recent times as our family has started to come to reconciliation and forgiveness and love for each other. So it was especially sweet that we would have that time. And it was really good. It was really good. My mom made this fantastic meal. And, uh, I mean, I was really full. <laughs> the meal was great. And my mom and dad were there, my brother, his wife, and they got two little boys. And, you know, my, and I have three children. So all our children were together. Um, you know, the, the, my young, the youngest is, is my nephew, Owen, and Owen is two years old. And some of you have seen and known Owen you know, when he comes to our church. Owen is hilarious. He's such a hilarious kid. He's got this willful selfishness to him. But he's so cute that it's, you just can't get mad at him. You're just like he's acting like a little snot. Right? But you can't just get mad at him because he's so cute. And he... You know, of, of my three children, there's, you know, I have, uh, there's Hudson, Laura, and Elizabeth. He just loves Laura. He adores Laura. Laura treats him really well. She reads, like, stories to him. And, and so my brother was laughing. He says, yes, to, to Owen, you have Hudson. He calls Hudson, Hudson. He calls Elizabeth, Elizabeth. But he calls Laura, Nuna. <laughs> right? And, and for those of you who don't know, Nuna means older sister. It's a term of endearment and respect in Korean. So my little cousin, I mean, my little nephew calls his cousin, and he doesn't, I mean, he doesn't know a lick of, of Korean, but he knows Nuna, and Laura is Nuna, <laughs> right? And he loves her. He's like, Nuna, come on, you know? And to eat that delicious meal and to watch Owen bask in his love and from the love of his Nuna, Laura, is just a great night, right? But we got some... News that was not easy recently. Um, my father, for about a year or so, has had stomach issues. And I want to just like offer this to you. If you have a loved one who has some kind of persistent illness, right, some kind of persistent ailment, please, please, please go to a doctor. Right? Now, my father has recently gone through a battery of tests, and thankfully all those tests have come up negative. Nothing, nothing has come up. But one test has come up and has shown something. So my mom told me this news not long ago, and she told me, you should know this. Uh, He had a colonoscopy, and a bunch of polyps came up. And I was like, what what are polyps? So I go on the Internet, look up polyps, and I'm doing all this reading. What are polyps? Well, here's what a polyp is. It's a certain kind of growth of cells. It doesn't mean that he has cancer, but he could have cancer. And so right now, those polyps have gone to the lab, and we're not going to hear about this for another week or so. And so I'm praying. I'm praying, right? I'm praying that my dad doesn't have cancer. It is possible that he might, right? 
those polyp cells sometimes are not cancerous but can become cancerous, so they have to be removed. And he's had a number of those polyps removed. And so he's kind of suffering from that, you know, a little bit from that procedure. So last night when we were at that dinner, I was enjoying the dinner. I was enjoying the food. I was enjoying spending really good time with my brother and his wife and enjoying my nephews. And, but I was also thinking about my dad. My dad, it was one of his birthdays. He's one of the ones whose birthday. It was my wife's birthday is this month. My sister-in-law Jane's birthday is this month. And my dad's birthday is this month. We actually sang happy birthday three times. We sang it right. My dad played the piano. And we sang it three times. Once for each person. Because we said, well, go from you first because you're the oldest dad. And so we sang to him, then to, to, then to Grace, and then to my sister-in-law. And it was really, it was, it was, it was great, you know. But it was on my mind. How many more birthdays might I have with my dad? Maybe these are one of the last few times that we may enjoy such time with my dad. Right? I don't. I, I pray it will not be the case that he will be healthy and I'll have like twenty more years with him. Right? We'll have twenty more birthdays with him and he'll become a really old guy. Right? He's seventy-three, so he's lived already a pretty good lengthy life. But Maybe I will not have that many more years with him. It's on my mind. And with that on my mind, I tell you, it's profoundly relevant when I read Mark chapter 15 that Jesus, our Savior, died for us to conquer death for us so that I can know that if my dad does go, I mean, of course he's going to go. Hopefully he's not going to go anytime soon. That one day, that this will not be my last meals with my dad. My dad knows Jesus. He knows the Lord. He loves him deeply. That these will not be my last meals. That one day we'll have eternity to enjoy the meals. It was a Korean meal. And to enjoy Korean meals with my dad. And that my nephew... Owen, won't he will have an eternity to run around and call out after his cousin, Laura Nuna, forever because of Jesus and what he did for us. Look on Jesus and live with joy and power. Even and especially if you have loved ones who may be facing sickness and hurt. We offer you Jesus in this. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for Christina Lee's father who is diagnosed with cancer. We pray for Mrs. Chung in our, fam- in our Korean side who was diagnosed with cancer. We pray for comfort to the An family. I pray for all those hearing this message today who in recent years have lost a loved one, Lord. And we pray that Jesus would be known. Jesus would be exalted. Jesus would be believed. And the power of his resurrection would answer the fear, the bitterness, and the presentiment of death that we face in this fallen life, Lord. 
We thank you, Jesus, that though we did not deserve it, that you would die and you would wash us of our sins and you would let us live with you and with each other, have the very possibility and gift to have each other forever. We thank you, Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's respond to the Lord.